over the last several weeks, we've looked at the book of Judges. The seventh book of the Bible. It describes for us the record of an extremely depressive time in the history of Israel. They had just come out of Egypt, not many years previously, under the great display of God's power in releasing them from the cruel Pharaoh. Came out with great abundance, gold, silver, herds. God brought them through the wilderness, displayed his power and presence to them over 40 years. He had promised them the promised land. He provided for them a great leader, Joshua, to take them in. And he did. He took them across the Jordan into the promised land. And under his great commanding and leadership, brought them the promised land. Defeated enemies conquered foes distributed land to each of the tribes of Israel so they each had their own little block of land then he died they had no leader to take his place that starts the book of Judges Joshua dies The people gather together. What are we going to do now? We don't have a leader. They cried out to God. What do we do? God gave them direction. The tribe of Judah will lead you. Follow them. And they began to follow the tribe of Judah. And we saw in chapter 1 how they destroyed ten enemies under the leadership of Judah. But in the midst of those ten victories, we also saw one partial victory. Because they failed to fully trust God. They let the nation down in the plain that had the chariots of iron. They left them alone. Oh, we can't, we can't defeat them. Even though Joshua had specifically told them, don't fear those down in the plain that have chariots of Iron, because God will enable you to defeat even them. They failed to believe God. And as a consequence of that seemingly small time and occasion of unbelief, there followed seven losses in a row. They could not conquer their enemies and we read in chapter 2 the summary and the prediction if you will of the years that would follow as a consequence of their unbelief a continual cycle sin of unbelief turning aside from God worshipping idols the oppression of enemies 
God in his mercy sending them a judge who would lead them in victory over their enemies upon the death of the judge a return back to sin a cycle and we came to the last of the judges Samson and then we began to read some individual accounts provided at the end of the book of Judges not because they occurred after Samson but as a particular emphasis by the writer of Judges to show not only was this sin pervasive in all of the land of Israel but it affected individuals and the writer of Judges describes some individuals and we discover that it began in Judges chapter 1 for we read in Judges chapter 1 verse number 29 and it's on your sheet that one of the seven losses occurred to the family of Ephraim they did not drive the Canaanites out of their territory even though Joshua had defeated the king of Gezer under his leadership they still did not drive them out we look at one family within the families of Ephraim a man by the name of Micah we find his story beginning in Judges chapter 17 verses 1 through 5 I will read those and you can follow on the verses I printed out for you there was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah and he said to his mother the 1100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears behold the silver is with me I took it and his mother said blessed be my son by the Lord and he restored the 1100 pieces of silver to his mother and his mother said I, de- I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image now if you've ever wondered the definition of an oxymoron there's an example of an oxymoron you cannot dedicate an idol to God can't do it he is the only true and living God there is none beside him and so here's Micah's mother on the one hand voicing praise unto God but using a cursed means by which she attempted to do it providing two idols for her son I digress we'll go back now therefore I will restore it to you he said so when he restored the money to his mother his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image and it was in the house of Micah and the man Micah had a shrine 
And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Not only do we see in the nation of Israel the evidence and proof of infidelity, a failure to trust and believe God, and at the same time to believe that which is false, idols, we see it depicted for us very clearly in the life of Micah and his family. He failed to trust God. And he chose to believe that which was false, to worship an idol. As we examine this brief account from the life of Micah, we observe that infidelity leads to something. doesn't stand isolated. We have this notion that we have an awareness of a particular sin in our life, but we relegate it just to that part of our life. It, it, it's only over there. It really doesn't have any impact upon the rest of my life. The rest of my life is okay. It's just that one little part, and we'll just, you know, just kind of put it in the closet every now and then as though we put it aside, as if it doesn't have any effect upon our lives. But we see, described for us very clearly from the life of Micah and his mother and his family, it had implications upon them. And the implications became dire. He rebelled against God. He disobeyed Him. Just flat out disobeyed Him. You say, well, how did He disobey Him? Let's look at the scriptures and we'll see how Micah, as well as the children of Israel, but we have zeroed in on Micah to see him personally. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 1 through 5, which you'll find near the bottom of your, of your sheet that I provided for you. Moses, talking to the children of Israel before they came into the promised land, giving them a warning preparing them ahead of time how they should respond when they come into the promised land. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods." Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. 
But thus shall you deal with them. Ye shall break down their altars, dash them in pieces, their pillars, and chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. Micah did none of those things. He did not defeat the Canaanites. He did not utterly destroy them as God said that they should. He left the peoples there within the city and within the territory of Ephraim. Including them as one with their nation. And worship their idols. He violated every one of those things that God instructed through Moses for the children of Israel to do when they got into the promised land. And in fact, we read the description in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 15. We've read that several times, so we won't take the time to read it again this morning. But it says they're just flat out. They didn't even know God. They had no personal intimacy. They had no fellowship with God. They did not know Him. They may have known about Him. They may have heard stories from their families and neighbors of what God had done. But they didn't know God. There was no personal intimacy in their understanding in their fellowship and their relationship with God and it says furthermore in that passage that they abandoned him they left him they departed right away from him had nothing to do with him all of it coming as a culmination of their unbelief in God and their belief in the false gods about them turning their hearts away from God in disobedience that's a description of Micah and he in a small way describes the whole nation of Israel what they had done as well now as we contemplate this description of Micah What does it tell us about his character? He had nothing to do with God. In fact, as you read that passage, other than the superficial comments by his mother, which carried no true meaning to them, she just spouted phrases like, all too often we tend to do don't we she just spouted phrases about God but she didn't really know God because she made idols and anyone who really knew God would know you don't worship him with idols so Micah really didn't know God had no intimacy with him had no understanding of him and worse of all 
didn't care. He didn't care. He readily accepted the idols from his mother. And he built a shrine in his house. And he had other idols within his shrine. Demonstrating for us fully a heart and a mind and a will opposed to God. Wanting nothing to do with Him. Now then, what does it tell us about God and His character? What can we understand about God from this description of these events? God doesn't cooperate with sin. God didn't look down upon Micah and just kind of pat him on the head and said, Oh, that's all, oh, oh, poor Micah. You know, he's poor boy. Like we are prone to do with our children and grandchildren and others, we, we tend to kind of pat them on the head and say, Oh, that's all right. He, he's really basically a good boy. She's basically a good woman. God doesn't do that. God had told them, if you reject me, I will turn against you and become your enemy. We read that in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 15. As we read those verses as a, as a prelude into the whole book of Judges, and we have seen judge after judge after judge having to come to the rescue of the children of Israel. Why? Because God had become their enemy. And He stirred up the enemies of Israel to come against them and to oppress them. And we find that as a consequence of their sin and rebellion and disobedience against God, that God withdrew His presence. They no longer knew His presence. He had withdrawn it and had actually become their enemy instead of their defender. We also see displayed for us here God's long-suffering He suffers long with us. And all too often, we have a tendency to think that because God doesn't smack us dead at the first white lie that we tell, that somehow God doesn't care. Oh, God suffers long. He's patient. Enduring our foolishness all the while absent from us. He lets time pass and time pass and time pass for us to turn and to repent and to confess and to trust. And we see in the life of Micah, and as we progress through his further story, we will see God's continuing long-suffering. 
the scriptures also tell us, and I would remind you, and I would be remiss not to remind you, that God says my spirit will not always strive with man. There comes a day when he withdraws fully and completely, never to return. That's why the scriptures remind us, and they reminded them, today is the day. Don't wait until tomorrow. We don't have a promise of tomorrow. We only have today. So we see God as merciful, long-suffering in Micah. Even though he has rejected God, God has given him time. Given him time to turn from his sinful ways and to come to him. So why would God prompt Samuel, the one that scholars believe wrote this record? Why would God prompt Samuel to write this record? It confounds many people in our day to see such descriptions in the holy book, the Bible. How is it that your holy book can contain such vile things? If God doesn't believe in idols, how can he have a story in there about a man named Micah and his mother worshiping idols? How can he do that? Why would God permit such a record in his book and preserve it? Well, initially, God provided it for the children of Israel. For their instruction. For their enlightenment. To come to a knowledge of their true condition. Sometimes we have a hard time with the truth, don't we? We like to flower it up a little bit. And make it appear a little bit better than what it really is. And we don't always like to face the unvarnished truth right there in front of us and conclude the realities of life. And God provides this record through his prophet Samuel to help them see the reality and the depravity of their wickedness and their sin. God doesn't smile at idolatry and rebellion and unbelief. Consequences come from those sins. And they're described here in full bloom. The consequences of sin Oppression, blindness, bondage, defeat, the absence of God's presence. He also provides it as a warning. Here's what happens when you fail to believe me and don't trust me and don't obey me. Here's what happens. God provides this record for his people to instruct them to warn them to remind them of their need of a savior and then he provides little saviors judges who came and provided some of the acts of a savior delivering them from their enemies 
Oh, but with great frailties included. And great physical weakness, it was only for a short time, as long as that judge lived. But yet using them as examples for the people to see, oh yes, God did promise that, and here's an example. How do these events connect to God's plan of redemption? Because they do. They fit in. There's a place for them. When God created the wonderful earth that we see, and by the way, I would remind you, this is a creation that is under sin. This isn't the perfect creation that God made in the garden. This is a a creation that groans, the Bible tells us. But he created it originally beautiful, perfect. Adam and Eve, sinless, holy, righteous. They had the ability to know and to understand God. And the ability to obey Him. And they did obey Him. And they did believe Him and trust Him. And they experienced that intimacy of fellowship. But a day came when the serpent came. Caught them perhaps by surprise tempted them, lied to them about the nature of God. You know, God's withholding on you. You think he's giving you good... Oh, no, he's not. He's, he's not giving you good things. He's withholding from you. And if you will listen to me, you will find the things that he's withholding from you and how good they are. And they fell for the temptation and they sinned against God. They didn't believe him. They didn't believe God. We see the beginning of the cycle of sin that we find repeated throughout the book of Judges. Unbelief, rebellion, belief of error, disobedience, the need of a Savior. God came to them and began his plan of redemption in the Garden in Eden when he promised to Adam and Eve a champion. A savior. The seed of the woman will come and will defeat and crush the head of the serpent. And God throughout the ages of history has provided great examples and stories preparing us for that savior that he promised. And this story of the account of Micah is part of that progression. Showing the people they need a Savior. And to show them the depravity of their hearts without God. And that this Savior needed to be more than just a human Savior. They saw those. They saw the judges, but they had failures about them and failings in their lives. And they could only provide a very temporary relief all picturing to the children of Israel the kind of Savior they really needed. They need a Savior who not only can crush the head of the serpent, but who can give us a different nature entirely, so that we don't pursue after those things that God says to reject. So it fits right into God's plan. We know, because we live centuries after Micah that God fulfilled his promise he provided a savior just as he said he would 
his son, Jesus, who fulfilled every prediction throughout all of the Old Testament history that God sent to prepare the people so they could identify that Savior when he came. He fulfilled every one. And he came. And he provided in his life, in his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all the totality of salvation that we sinners need. The Savior, the promised one. So this story not only had importance for the children of Israel, but it has value for you and me as well. Because don't we find ourselves in Micah? Don't we find Micah reproduced in our everyday life about us? Don't we see hundreds and thousands of Micahs talk about God, use His name, perhaps even in attempted reverence, and yet failing to obey Him and to worship Him truly as He said? But all too often it might even describe you and me. Does it describe you and me? I can't see your heart, so I can't say, yeah, it does you, and not you, but yeah, you. No, I, I can't, I don't have that ability. But God knows. You can't fool Him. He may suffer along with you, and you may think everything is okay, until one day the Spirit of God says, you know, that's not okay. It's not right. You're just like Micah. Learn from him. Turn and believe. Because you and I and the church of Jesus Christ in our day follows in so many ways the example of Micah. And we see in the world about us repeated the example of Micah. We need to heed the enlightenment and the warning that God provides through this narrative, this record. And we must turn from our sinful ways to trust the Savior whom God has provided for us for people like you and like me some of us need to turn to him as redeemer as savior to reconcile us back to God to some of us who have come to faith and trust in Christ We too need Jesus. We too need to turn to Him and to trust Him to restore us every day, to revive us, to encourage us, to reproduce in us His very life by the mysterious work of His Holy Spirit, which He promised He would do. A couple of questions for you to 
think about today? Where has the Spirit of God identified in your life today how you emulate Micah? And where you have failed to trust God and where you have believed in untruth and where you have rebelled against God and where you have failed to believe and to trust Him and you've set Him aside. How will you respond to that? Will you just reject it and set it aside and refuse it and say, I don't want it? Will you set it aside until tomorrow? I would remind you, as I said a few moments ago, you aren't promised tomorrow. Will you come to grips with it today and face the reality of your condition before God and listen to His voice and heed His call to you today? What changes will that require in your life? Turn. Trust. Jesus made it simple. He said, I came, the Father sent me. Whosoever believes in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. When he began to proclaim the kingdom, it says that he told the people repent and believe very simple I call upon you this morning repent and believe and you say well I have done that is there an area in your life where you need to repent and obey turn and believe trust Christ today for a new working in your life don't wait until tomorrow you may not see tomorrow. Let's close with a word of prayer, shall we?